Everything exciting about Santa's sidekick. We will recap very briefly the Mercer game. No sense talking about it more than we have to. We've got a lot to talk about in Playoff Watch and Portal Watch. Playoff Watch. Remember when you did the Naked Watch bumper for, I think, maybe the one broadcast that was going into Tennessee? We had, like, one broadcast going into Tennessee, and you made a Naked Watch, and it was brilliant. Maybe one of the best things I've ever done. We never used it again. Why was that? Uh, that's a great question, probably because um, – Randy Sanders didn't say he was going to walk naked again. That's true. But I we could have used it for other things. Like, we're, we're good about using well, things it, other times creatively in different uh, ways. And, and one time I did give a play-by-play description of Derek Waugh getting naked during a game, who was the one coach that would, you know, the tie would come off, then the jacket, then a few buttons, then the roll up the sleeve, and next thing you know, he's almost shirtless at the end of the game. I think the direct quote was, I am very excited to see how naked Derek Waugh is by the end of this contest. Yeah, I don't understand how you're not excited about it. <laughs> well, firstly, you, I don't know Derek. That's right. That's I'd your like problem. To get to know that's your problem. Before we get to that level. Okay. Well, that's where we differ. <laughs> you, <were, laughs> you were not prepared for that. It's <laughs> all right. All right. Uh, yeah. I, I don't have tra- let, 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 Let's transition to Mike's afraid of nakedness and bears. How about that? Is that, that's, uh, is that a seamless I transition? I don't want to be naked in front of a bear. That's true. Uh, I, I feel like do you really want to be naked in front of anybody. That's just, wow. Yeah. I'm very confident in my body. Oh, good. Yeah, that's uh, you about seventy three crunches into your ten thousand goal. I'm well, sure and, it, well, in fairness, I, I think it's very uncomfortable how comfortable I am in my body. <laughs> that's I'm fair. like, uh, what's the comedian Bert? Whatever his name is, he's always shirtless and Burt like Reynolds. It. No, it's not no. Bert Reynolds. Okay. No, he's the host of Big Bang. Not the what was it? The Go Big Show. Anyways, he has a show on Netflix. You need to watch. Bert and Ernie. All right, uh, we're gonna move from Bert and Ernie. To Landis and Peavy, that was the uh, we talked a lot about that contest and maybe the two quarterbacks who would do whatever. And if you just look strictly numbers, you know you'd sit there and go, "Well, Rock, you know, had a better game." I mean, Peavy had nine of 15, 65 yards. Did have the touchdown pass. He did run for uh, twelve carries, fifty-eight yards. He had the forty-yarder on like the third play of the game, and it really was kind of held in check. ETSU twenty-six of forty-four for Landis, two twenty-eight, a touchdown. Uh, did throw an interception, credited uh, with the fumble on that lateral as well, and 11 carries for six yards. Of course, sacks come off that as well. So I, it was hard. It really wasn't as much as a quarterback battle um, that it was. Yes, Landis did throw an interception. Yes, he did uh, You know, have the lateral where him and Sailors were on the same page and go. But it was really, again, special teams blunders. I mean, you fumble – the punt return, you would have got the ball in your midfield, had momentum. Instead, you fumble it. Mercer goes 45 yards, gets momentum. You go right down the field and kick a field goal. So you're thinking, okay, start to swing the tide a little bit. Then you give up uh, an 80-plus yard kick return. It sets up, uh, I think, officially in the books, an eight yards, like eight yards and a half yard drive for a touchdown. And I think just those couple things, it was, it was tough for ETSU to kind of get going again. And they did get another field goal right before halftime. They were getting the ball to start second half. They've been real good at doubling up. And that was the first sign to me that things were going to be different because of how they struggled on that first series to start the third quarter where they've been really, really good at doubling up points. And honestly, you could go back at it and go, they passed on the field goal 
and went for it on fourth and one, didn't get it. But they were able to utilize their timeout smartly, you know, get a three and out, use all their timeouts, get the ball back, and still get a field goal. So, to me, that was kind of a wash, and you still should have had momentum going in the locker room. But that was the first sort of my antennas went up that this was going to be a little bit of a struggle because I was used to seeing them struggle in the first half, Mike. I was just so used to start the third quarter, they're going to go down, they're going to score, and here we go, they're going to start to run the table, and that didn't happen. So I lost my phone this weekend, and I start the broadcast here, get the pregame show up and running, leave it to Adam and Nick, a couple of guys from Buccaneer Sports Network that work with us, have done a great job all year. I'm going to go home, and then I'm like, okay, i got to go to the place where I think I lost my phone, go try and find it. took me like 45 minutes. Unfortunately, didn't find it, and that means I missed pretty much all the first half. On the way home, I'm, let's see, probably about seven and a half minutes, maybe halfway through the second quarter, catch the end of it, and I'm like, this is great. Bucks have them right where they want them. I mean, this is how every single game has gone. I mean, it's 14 to 3, and you start to see the messages right that, at least on social media, because I couldn't get messages personally at that point. Uh, but you see on social media, people are starting to hit the panic button. You know, 14 to 3, a couple of special teams, mistakes, and you're worried if you didn't know this team. But you saw what they had done. They loved to fall behind early. They loved to give up tons of yards on the first drive or two. What did they give up? 67 on the first drive, 152 the rest of the game. That's insanity. 152 the rest of the game on, I think it was like 13 drives. Or it was maybe 134 after the first quarter on 13 drives. It was something absurd. It was like 10 yards a drive. And then you're right. You get the field goal. You go into the second half. I still felt that ETSU was in good shape. You know, you, you get the ball first, first down. Landis hits Lester. First down, Landis hits Lester again. This time, 15 yards. You move into Mercer territory. Okay, three straight incompletions. You've still flipped the field. You still have Mercer pinned back. But then Mercer's able to flip the field on you a bit, and then you have, you know, a punt after a Landis sack and incompletion, and they're back and forth, back and forth, and then it was finally the big mistake. And it was devastating to see that that third quarter held no points, right? And you're still right there, but then the big mistake. And it's just in a game that went the way that that one did, it was going to be decided by mistakes, right? Because if there weren't no either mistakes on either side, 389 to 212 ETSU outgained the Bears. I mean, or 219 or whatever it was. And it's lopsided statistically, but you talked about it. The Jacob Sailors... Supposed to run, apparently a little curl, Randy Sanders said post-game. Instead, he runs it flat. Landis fires a missile at his head from like five or six yards away, throws it too hard, not on target. And Nissan McKee, who had an absolutely tremendous game with the kicker turn and then the recovery, goes back the other way. And uh, it seemed like at that point to me the game was over. ETSU made it interesting. They always do, another one-score game. But you're right. I think we always talk about in the first show after a football game, when did you know, right? And it's always a little bit too early, you know. You say something in the first quarter, early second quarter, because things usually unfold a certain way. So for you, when you knew that this game was over, quote-unquote, which is always what we term it in kind of a you know, half-joking fashion, it was when the Bucks did not score on that first possession after halftime. I, I don't know that I would have at the time. Well, of course you wouldn't say it's a, I, but you know what I mean. Right, 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 at the time, time, looking back at it, that was the – that was a moment where – I think you felt 
the Bucks were always good at doing things, get down the field, get points on the board, and when they didn't, and I think it was a three and out too. I think it was a very quick, or as a quick drive, wasn't a three and out. It was something yeah, very. A couple of first downs and then punted. Okay, but I think it fizzled out, right, the three incompletions, right, yep. fizzled it out. So it just didn't feel right, though. Something about the drive. And then they struggled offensively, and Sailors is arguing to get in the game, and, and Jared Folks was the peacemaker trying to calm him down. He hasn't practiced in two weeks, so I'm not sure you know, what particular plays are going to do. And then all of a sudden, they get him out there. He makes some plays, gets him down the field. And then, you know, when you run that little flare out, and I've heard Matt Wilgen talk about this all the time, just how difficult of a throw sort of that is down the line. And then to hear Randy Sanders postgame talk about the depth of the quarterback has to be right. The running back has to cheat up to make sure that he's in front of the quarterback. Neither of those things happen. And it was it was just very odd because earlier in the game, there, and correctly both of these were ruled, but there was earlier in the game there was a pitch from Peavy that was forward that was picked up by Robinson that would have scored a touchdown, ruled incomplete. They reviewed it. It was incomplete. And they reviewed this one, and it was a fumble. But it is funny that there's a tell of two laterals, one that happened to be a yard forward for an incomplete that ETSU should have had, where the play they were running, the pure option play where it's supposed to be pitched backwards, ended up accidentally being pitched forward. So there's a lot of little knick-knack things there, but it did appear uh, last night's coach's show, Coach Sanders talked about mental fatigue. And I've usually, usually last game of the year, I don't go back and watch. And I watched just a – and I did not watch a lot of this. Just, you know, if ETSU – and we'll talk about this here a little bit when they playoff watch. If they get into playoffs, I'll go back and watch it and figure some stuff out. But usually in the last game of the year, I just wait a while before um, – or watch it or I don't even watch it at all. Just, you know, let, let the season go and, and move on to the next year. But I'll be kind of curious to go back and watch and see if I could pick up on maybe some of the things he was talking about with the fatigue part, at least with the offense, young guys. And I think that's the difference. You had, you know, and he harps on this, but there's no seniors. Keith Coffey was going to be your only senior, and he transferred right before the spring season started. So no seniors. I think there's four. I think he said five juniors. I think there's five because you look at uh, two on the offensive line. Uh, you look at Nate Atkins, a tight end, and then you look at Sailors and Holmes. And think, think about that. That is your junior class. Um, the rest sophomores are freshmen. And, it, and you say that sometimes, like, oh, they play a lot of games, do this and another. But I think there's still, you know, at the quarterback position, you still need a little bit more of a leader. And I think Brock has certainly shown improvement from game one, two, and three. I think there's still a lot of room to grow. I think offensive line, Traymond Short's quiet guy. You know, certainly when he speaks, I've seen guys listen. Um, when Big Fred goes out with the injury, I think that hurt. Um, I think Matt McCutcheon's line was, I hope, uh, I think he turned to Coach Sanders said, I hope you get rid of the ball a little quicker because the right side of the line is going to have a hard time if you're sitting back a lot. And, you know, Trayman had talked a lot. Quay Holmes is kind of the quiet leader. Sailors had a little emotion, but it was really little emotion so he could get on the field. So, I, I, you know, and I'm not knocking that. I'm just saying he's a competitor. He wants to play, and he made plays. Um, ended up being on the play that probably put the game away. And I think the other confusing thing, Again, going back sort of the mental part of it, right as they gave up the fumble, they go right down the field, very clinical, efficient, for a touchdown. Yeah. Then they come back, and they throw an interception, and, and probably one of the – out of all the throws, that was the one 
And I know Landis missed on a couple, but at least he was looking people off and then coming back and, and you know, not making the throw. This is the one where he literally stared at the guy the whole time through it there. Mercer knew their defense was playing well, just basically uh, effectively ran it three times, took three knees, whatever, whatever they did. And then ETSU got the ball back, and there was no – after the interception, it seemed to suck the life out of him, and there was no real belief. When they started the drive right after the fumble, like you, there was a little pep in the step. People were doing things. The offense felt like a, a smooth operation. Then the interception happened. It was pretty quick in the drive, uh, the second or third play, whatever it was. And I don't know if that just sucked the whole life out of it or what it was, but that last drive did not look like the two drives previous, and I think that was disappointing because they had, should, to me, have all the momentum of, hey, we can go right back down the field. We can score. We get a two-point conversion. We're going to do what we always do, which is go to overtime or play one possession game. So that was that was probably the second part for me was the interception. I was like, okay, there's time. You've got timeouts. I figured Mercer would run the ball. They did. Get the stop, then go get the touchdown. R- right. 21-13. Right. How much time? There's, you know, there's a minute. Five, well, there's five, there's five minutes left after the touchdown. Then you get another stop, and then you get the ball back three minutes left. Yeah. Uh, so there's – Time, you know, and you had timeouts. I mean, there was time to do it. So I, I don't get the, but it looked a very disinterested drive. It, it maybe, and I can't figure. I'll, if I went back and watched anything, that would probably be. I'd probably watch the touchdown drive after the fumble, watch the next drive with the interception, and then watch the last drive and just take a look at the difference in everything because I think it is noticeable. It was very strange because I know you got the timeouts, but couple of times, play clock ran inside like 10, and you took over with three minutes left, and I know it's one score away, and you don't want to leave the other team too much time. I think you would be completely and utterly confident after all of the time that you've seen ETSU's defense when you need them step up and get a stop. I don't think that you could give Mercer 10 cracks at it at that point in the game, and they're going down and scoring. If they get the ball back after, say, you you know do hurry up a little bit, you give them the ball with a minute 30 back, right? After you get a touchdown and two, it's 21-21. I have all the confidence in the world after giving up, again, 152 yards in the final, whatever it was, 12 or 13 drives after that first drive. There was no way. I, I was not impressed with Mercer's offense. Extremely impressed with ETSU's defense. Peavy goes from throwing for, what, 406 the week before? Those were 65. 65. <laughs> I mean, insane. And Yes, all of the misdirection is fun to look at for Drew Cronick's team. It is. It was flashy and kind of disoriented you a bit. I mean, the Buccaneers just didn't care. They went up there and made plays, and it was so impressive. Um, I think maybe part of the confusion for you on that drive didn't feel right, right out of halftime, would you have envisioned ETSU throwing it 44 times? to running it 32 times. And on that drive, I think it was 6-2. to two. And, again, I think it was uh, Mercer did – I think they caught each issue a little by surprise because they didn't show anything that they really ran in that game. And credit to them, right, be a little bit um, – you know, because they run so many defensive backs and that are faux linebackers or linebackers that are faux defensive ends, it does give them a lot of options. And basically they said, okay, VMI kind of stymied the Bucks by doing this. Well, we're going to do the same thing, except we have better athletes than VMI. But here's my problem. If you're doing what VMI did against ETSU, was that the game that the Bucks had 
41 rush yards or whatever it was, or was that – that was a different game. I'm trying to remember which game they had 41 rush yards. Was that Furman maybe? Uh, it was 90 against Furman, and then the Citadel perhaps? Yeah, it was the Citadel. So 41 yards. If you're having the kind of success as you did against the Citadel, right, 41 yards, 1.1 yards per carry. Okay, I get it. Throw the ball because you don't have an option. But you had 6.8 a carry and 6.4 a carry for your top two running backs. If they're putting nine in the box, if they're putting safeties within a couple yards of the line of scrimmage, and you're still getting that, why not just run, run, run? Because 44 times, to me, for a quarterback that is still working his way into the FCS level, still getting comfortable in this offense, and maybe (laughs) – judging by quarterbacks of the past that have been in the offense for a little bit of time. Maybe you're never comfortable, right? Because there's always more things added, and Coach Sanders is going to push the envelope and always try to get that little bit extra. And that's what has made him a great offensive mind, right? That is what has partially given Jameis Winston and Peyton Manning the kind of success that they did already, of course, incredible players, but Coach Sanders always pushed them, right? And he tries to do that with this offense and these quarterbacks, and it just hasn't worked out the same. But 44 times, I would have said if you're throwing it that much, you're probably in like a either a 42-38 shootout where you're just trying to keep up with a Mercer offense that was exploding or you're getting blown out. So it was odd in a close, low-scoring game that 44 times the ball was in the air. Yeah, I, I mean. 6.4 and 6.8 to carry. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, he had the 43-yarder by Holmes. And, yeah, I think it's the difference between Holmes and some of the other. He's so good. The one probable – criticism you could have is he doesn't have the home run ability because I can, in my mind, there's probably six running backs in the league when he burst through the line against Mercer that probably could have took it to the house where he got walked down from behind and ended up being a 43-yard game. Sure. And so, and that was a big chunk. I mean, if you take that out, he averaged still 3.5, which I would still argue, you know, in a game like that where you needed yards at a premium, you needed to move the chains, almost four yards a carry. You know, if you're not good at real math, if you get three, 3.5, right, you still got enough for a first down. Just like so, against VMI, what did Coach Sanders ask for? Three, four yards Yeah, here. so, yeah, but they, it was press coverage. It was, and this is another game I think Isaiah Wilson would have been really good at. Um, just because he can beat people off the line. He's, you know, he's like 210, 215, a little bigger wide receiver. You know, he can kind of push DBs around. I think a little bit of depth issue there. Um and then the other thing is there was a couple plays again. I know Coach Sanders harps on this. I still go back to two of the plays he brought up on the coaches show last night. One was a tight end screen where it was three on one and Nate Atkins, who normally always does the right thing, went the wrong way. The guy was blocking him inside and he runs inside and gets tripped for six yards. And he probably would have got another fifteen to twenty. Um, maybe he wouldn't have scored from there, but he would have certainly got the ball to the ten yard line or further. And instead, it ends up being fourth and three instead of a first down. And then it was another one where I, I kind of felt like, I think it was Huzzy, you know, kind of broke off a route early. Maybe it was West. West broke off a route early. Um, instead of, you know, he needed his fourth, it was third and six. And he blocked, then he released, and he goes, you know, his normal steps, turns around, catches the pass, but he falls forward. So it ends up being fourth and one, each issue doesn't get it falls backwards or he gets the extra yard. Now, I've always had a little bit of problem. Each issue always seems to have, if it's like a play at the sticks, they always seem to run to the sticks. Um, and 
granted, I only played high school football, but I can always remember my high school football coach giving me the, hey, make sure you're a yard or two past so when you come back you get it, right? I feel like this is not a thing that should be talked about, but in the heat of the battle, and I'm sure the coaching staff's talked to them about it, but in the heat of the battle we've seen it too many times where the receivers are going straight to the sticks instead of getting a yard or two more. And then they're not getting the first down. And the reason I bring that up because instead of first and whatever, that was fourth and one. They didn't get it. Now they got points on it. But if you get that, it's first and goal inside the 10. You're at like the eight-yard line. And that those little two things there in the first half change things dramatically that I don't think show up. And I don't think, you know, eventually, because it all goes against quarterbacks, it goes against Landis. But Landis throws a screen pass. It was perfectly called. There are three linemen against one. It's perfectly done. You should get the first down. You don't. You have to force the kick. Then you have a situation where you have to go from fourth and one because you should have had a first down, and it's on another drive. Both those things happen. Things go. There are so many, you know, minute things this year that you could point to in a lot of games. And I'm sure you could point some out for Mercer too. But there's so many minute things on the offense that you're like four to six plays that it seemed like in 2018, all those things, they got that extra yard. They did a few extra things. And Landers credit, one of the first downs they got in the second half was him pulling Austin Herrick, pulling the ball down, and a guy's thinking he's going to slide, and Landers literally runs right over him and bowls his way into a first down. And I think that got the team a little fired up because when you see a quarterback laying himself on the line like that, generally people play. I think it was on the touchdown drive. But either way, there's some little things there that were plays were there to be made, and ETSU didn't make them. Now, they're not that far away, but how do they go, assuming there's no more football, how do they transition that into the fall to taking that next step to where I feel like if most guys come back, and the chances are not everybody's going to come back, some guys graduate, some guys want to move on, some guys don't want to go through this anymore, some guys have job opportunities. Um, could be a weird guy that transfers, tries to play somewhere else. But for the most part, I think the core of the guys are going to come back. There will be a couple that go. It always happens this way. But if they all go, can they use this spring season to sort of jumpstart what they could be in the fall? Because if the defense, even when some of the key guys were out, the backups looked great. I mean, they were locked step barrel. I'm hoping that that will continue in the fall and then the offense has time to catch up to it. I think the big break for ETSU for the second consecutive week, as a matter of fact, Brock Landis made a mistake and it should have been a pick six. So there are some things on Mercer's side and I think that that was wise who then had the interception on the very next play. So that is something to think about too. Like you said, there is stuff on both sides. Overall, I was very impressed with the wide receiving core and if you do have everybody back, Puzzy, Lester, who was hit six times for 53. Huzzy, eight for 74, plus that touchdown. And that was a nice throw from Brock Landis. He cleared that defender, had to put it up in the air, and Huzzy went up and made the play. And then you have Wilson back, and you have Atkins. There's a lot of things to get excited about. But you're ready to assume there's no more football. I am not quite there, because next. After this timeout, Santa Sockick, Buccaneers Sports Network. Over the last 70 years, Johnson City Power Board has had a few different looks. But we've remained the same trusted partner you rely on. Now, we've changed our name to Bright Ridge to match our vision, to deliver on our promise of great service you can count on, embracing common sense technology to strengthen the communities we serve. We're glad to be your public power provider. Bright Ridge, new name, renewed promise. Learn more at brightridge.com.
roll this back. We got another three minutes on this. Normally I have a top 25 bumper. Haven't used it at all this year because we've kind of eliminated that segment when we went to two days a week. But this is national FCS talk. we got to talk playoffs because, yes, very damaging loss, I think, to Mercer. There's still games to be played yet, and the result of the Southern Conference games that are this weekend. Mercer playing Sanford, I believe, is that right? And then it's VMI and the Citadel. Correct. Citadel's red hot. Now, Mercer going up against Liam Welch. I mean, Let obviously, me say, yeah. it. <laughs> it's a, I mean, Mercer doesn't play a lot, a lot of defense. And uh, let me say this: if they they will not have the game plan they had against ETSU, because if they try to mimic the game plan VMI did against Sanford, Welch threw for five seventy. So my guess is they'll go back a little bit more of their traditional defensive set that uh, they would have had and try to contain Welch. But the Vegas wise guys are not buying into Mercer. They have Sanford as a favorite. And that would obviously hold some implications. Now, you think, before we get into the national side of things, you think that the best scenario is VMI winning, Mercer losing in terms of ETSU's chances of the playoffs. I believe that is the best way uh, for that to happen. I think if, obviously, if both teams win, then Mercer and VMI are going to, I think, would both get in the playoffs, and, and rightfully so. I think if they both lose, I think that does more damage to the league, and I think it's going to be a hard time convincing the committee to get two teams in. So I think ETSU's best route is that VMI wins and Mercer were to lose. So Mercer at Sanford, Citadel at VMI, 1 o'clock and one thirty respectively on Saturday. We'll get back to the SoCon in a bit. But nationally, because we know that there's changes to the field this year, right, usually 24 teams usually a greater number of auto bids, usually an even greater number of at-large bids. This year, it's only 16 teams, and you've got six at-larges. It was five, but then the MEAC lost their bid because of some matchup difficulties amongst contending teams. The auto bids are the Big Sky, Big South, CAA, Missouri Valley, NEC, OVC, Patriot League, Pioneer League, SOCON, and Southland. Let's go over it league by league. You can zone out for the next, like, ten minutes if you want. And then you've got a ton to add that is a bit different than what I'm adding, just kind of setting the table. Weber State is in at the top of the Big Sky. Monmouth dismantled Kennesaw State this weekend to take the Big South's bid, or so we think. Now, Monmouth apparently needs another game because the minimum you have to play to get into the FCS playoffs is four. So consider that as we approach the weekend. Now, from your understanding, if Monmouth does not play, because Kennesaw State has played five games, they would still get the auto bid, correct? Yes, the league still can determine who the auto bid league is by their standard, especially in COVID. They certainly can determine um, how they're going to do that, and I believe Kennesaw has been told if they can't do it, then Kennesaw would be your league champion. Duquesne lost to Sacred Heart this past weekend in the NEC title game, so Sacred Heart is in. Jacksonville State beat Murray State for the OVC title, so they're in. Sam Houston State beat McNeese. They're in out of the Southland. The CAA, Missouri Valley, Patriot, Pioneer, and SoCon still are not decided yet. So here's what we have. James Madison, with a win over Richmond, takes the CAA title this weekend. They're number one in the country. Let's be honest, they're probably in regardless, so that would be one of the six at-larges gone if they lose. 
and Richmond could still get in, obviously, as an at-large if they lose. Plus, you've got three other one-loss or undefeated teams in Delaware, Rhode Island, and Villanova. Let's just say for now, they get just one at-large out of that league. Missouri State finished with one loss in the Missouri Valley. North Dakota has one loss, as do NDSU and SDSU. All of those teams outside of Missouri State were scheduled to play this coming weekend. North Dakota against Youngstown State and NDSU versus SDSU. That Bison Jackrabbits game is still on, but North Dakota and Youngstown State canceled by the Missouri Valley on Wednesday. So here's the situation Missouri State already done for their season at 5 and 1 and 5 and 4 overall. Three of those losses coming in the fall. Two were against Central Arkansas. One was against Oklahoma, of course. That one's likely going to be thrown out. But one loss in the league for Missouri State. NDSU or SDSU, one of those two teams is going to take their second loss. Now, you figure that if SDSU wins, that would be good for the Missouri Valley. If NDSU wins, could South Dakota State slide out of that playoff picture? Then what about North Dakota? They have just one loss. They don't have to play, so you would think that they would be in. Will the Missouri Valley get two? Will it get three? Now, if NDSU and SDSU had met the same fate as North Dakota and Youngstown State, you figure that three would be an absolute lock because there would be four one-loss teams. Now you've got a Missouri State team that's lost four games overall, but just one in the league. An NDSU and SDSU situation where one of those is going to take their second loss this week, barring some kind of unbelievable tie. And then North Dakota, who is at one loss and are done, so almost seems like they might be the most safe, though. That being said, NDSU is such a name, you feel like they're going to get in regardless. Very interesting situation. For now, let's say that there are two more at-larges there. Let's say three teams get in. That would be just three at-large bids left as we continue to kind of break down what things look like across the playoff picture to tell you what it looks like for ETSU and their prospects of getting in. I think the Missouri Valley is going to get three. So I think they're going Missouri, Missouri State, in my theory, is going to be out. So let's just assume that there's two more at-larges there, right, with the AQ. So you're down to three. And the Patriot... Holy Cross and Bucknell play for that title this Saturday. Tough to imagine an at-large there with each team having played just three games so far. In the Pioneer League, there's no championship game. Davidson plays Stetson, and San Diego plays Valparaiso. So if both win, there could be two one-loss teams there. May that take another at-large? That would make only two left. Then in the SOCON, you have just the one team with one loss, VMI. So on paper, it looks pretty good to this point. We've been through the teams where conference titles have been decided and well, figured out that there's four at-large bids gone, but we haven't gone through possible at-larges in the Big Sky, Big South, NEC, OBC, or South. The Pioneer's never going to get two teams there. So that so gives she, one back. She can, she can cross that one off the list. So uh, if, if you're just looking at losses and who's getting in. And I'm just looking Pioneer, at one loss right now. In a 24 team, there's not been one, so I doubt they're going to get one in 16. I'm just looking at one loss right now, and then we can factor in conference okay. power in a little All bit right. here. In the Big Sky, Eastern Washington has just one loss. Let's say they're in. They're obviously a name program. That would give you, again, this is under the assumption that the Pioneer gets two, which, as you just said, probably not going to happen, but we're checking them off, so that would leave one at-large bid if Eastern Washington is in and the Pioneer gets two. Kennesaw State has just one loss in the Big South. Hate to say it, you figure the Owls could be in. That being said, if Monmouth doesn't pick up a game, then that gives you an at-large back, right, because Kennesaw State would be the team that would get the auto bid. In the NEC, Duquesne, their first loss last week against Sacred Heart, may they sneak in and make the NEC a two-bid league? If so, probably another team ahead of ETSU. If not, we've reached the end of the line for teams with one or no league losses that are competing this spring and eligible for the playoffs. Again, they're Weber State, Eastern Washington, Monmouth, 
on the edge right now, right, because I haven't seen them announce another game. I don't know if you have, but I have not seen them announce another game at this point, and we're on a Thursday now. Kennesaw State, Delaware, Rhode Island, Villanova, Richmond, James Madison, NDSU, Missouri State, North Dakota, SDSU, Duquesne, Sacred Heart, Jacksonville State, Davidson, San Diego, VMI, Sam Houston State. That's 20 teams, to sum that up, 20 teams with one loss or less. Now, there may be some teams that take a second loss, maybe VMI against the Citadel. Could Villanova against Delaware? Will San Diego be upset victims on the road against Valpo? All possibilities. But then, as you talked about with the Pioneer, you have to factor in that they are probably not going to get two teams in. But then on the flip side, you've got the CAA and the Missouri Valley, certainly strong again this year, traditional powers at the FCS level. And you'd think that if teams are on the borderline, if it's an ETSU and the SOCON, and if it's a any of the teams that we just mentioned, you know, Delaware or Villanova or Rhode Island out of the CAA or a Missouri State in the Missouri Valley, you would think, just based off conference power, that they'd be in. Yeah, and I'm kind of curious. So I'm looking at Missouri Valley. North Dakota and Youngstown got canceled. Missouri State, and they're probably – They're done for. They're hating life because – they got canceled. They didn't have a chance to help out. And then South Dakota, Western Illinois got canceled. The two games they got going, the, the non-conference game, Southern Illinois and Southeast Louisiana, which Southeast Louisiana one. needs that more, right? Interesting one, yeah. That's a good – I'm going to go on the road, drive eight hours to impress a committee. This is what I'm willing to do. And to me, that should earn them a little street cred because they took that game on short notice and said, by gosh, we'll go do it. Now, they have two losses, but – I looked at Sagarin rankings, and they were number three this week of all of FCS. It, it certainly stands to reason that you would have to take a second glance at them. Then South Dakota State, North Dakota State, North Dakota State's going to be in regardless. It doesn't matter if they lost three games. They would be in the playoffs, I think, no matter what. I think at this point in time, my question is, the South Dakota State, don't they have more to lose than North Dakota State? If, if they lose this game, because if South Dakota State wins, they're actually going to be the champions. North Dakota State wins champions. This is a de facto championship game, but due to all the tiebreakers and everything else they got going in. So, my question is, if they do that, could you have the weird CAA, you know, get the three teams instead of Missouri Valley? Do you have then Southeast Louisiana sneak in because they get credit for going and winning that game? Sort of the other thing is the Delaware-Villanova, do they make that a play-in game? Now, Villanova's only got three games, so they have to have this game. And obviously, they have to have a win, right, because they're 2-1. If they win and Delaware falls to 5-1 and one or whatever, and they, in the weird, they didn't get a chance to play James Madison, and they would have one loss. You know, So, to me, does South, does South Dakota State, do, do this, does the committee look at them and go, okay, guys, you had a chance right here to do something. You didn't beat them. You would have to play there anyways at some other time. We're going to let... Delaware, we're going to let James Madison, you know, uh, probably not Villanova at that point in time, but we're going to let those teams in and sort of see how it shakes out from there. You know, Richmond would be the other one, but Richmond's playing James Madison. So if Richmond beats James Madison, to me both are in because JMU's not going to fall all the way there, right? right? And then, again, I think then they're going to have to take Delaware-Villanova winner. So you get three, and then does that – to me that's going to knock out Missouri Valley. I don't think the committee is going to go three teams from Missouri Valley and three teams from the CAA. And, and there's nothing that says they won't. I'm just basing it off of looking at some of the other leagues 
because I think we both agree Eastern Washington's going to be. Right. Right. And then you take out all the autos, right? So um, Sam Houston State's going to be an auto. They would have been in anyways. Um, Jackson State's going to be an auto. They would be in anyways. Um, Sacred Heart's in because they're the auto. They would not have been in. Right. Uh, Big South, Monmouth, or Kennesaw State, I don't think we're going to be in unless the winner were, just judging off the rankings last time. Now, new rankings come out today. And so I think the Big Sky is going to get two because they both are not playing. I don't think East Washington's done anything to get out. I think there's going to be three Missouri Valley right now, my guess. There'll be two CAA, but you could still make an argument for three, then how many spots you got left? So you got one. And is that going to be the Southern Conference? And if so, right now that would be Mercer. Because I, because I, you know, or do they take out one of the CAA teams and say, again, South Louisiana was willing to play a non-conference game, go on the road, and, and let's say they won big. Right. Let's say they were impressive there. You know, I, I think right now, I think outside looking in, Missouri State, Villanova, Southeast Louisiana, uh, Austin P. Some people have them knocking on the door. I do not. But again, not on there. And then um, from there, man, it's it's. It's tough to see ETSU's probably fourth or fifth on the bubble team left out. Which wouldn't normally be as much of a problem, except you can't play your final game of the year. And, and, and again, I, how, how does some of these other losses go? Some of these teams are going to play. Does a loss with South Coast State knock them out but then throw another team in? Again, if Richmond knocks off JMU or South Coast State – see, if South Coast State wins, honestly – I don't know that that matters as much, but if Richmond beats JMU, that's clearly going to take a bubble team out of there, and and it's going to take the Delaware Villanova win. So, it's still, it, long story short, it's still a realistic possibility that ETSU could somehow leapfrog a few teams by not playing and get in there. It depends on score. If South Louisiana loses, obviously they're out. If they win by three, maybe they're out. Maybe ETSU's already ahead of them. I, I don't know. Villanova's. Two and one, they lose, they're out. I mean, there's a couple. Richmond lose, they're out. Does Richmond and Mercer, so if they lose the what-if game, does Richmond, does that effectively knock them out and just Delaware's in, and so there is two CAA? Does South Dakota State lose, and do they dare go to Missouri Valley and they spread the wealth around the country? I don't think so, but if, you know. There's, in that scenario, it looks like you could get ETSU. You, you could. I mean, you could also get Missouri State and go the third one there. I, I don't know. They, they're, this is so intriguing that Sunday morning at 11.30 a.m., I think there will be a shocker in there that me and you, we've probably mentioned every name that's going to be considered. But I still think there could be a shocker uh, of what it is and it would be good fodder at some point in time. And if ETSU gets in there, somebody's going to be mad. If Mercer gets in there, I could see a Missouri Valley or CAA because those two teams and leagues have been the toughest. Big Sky – they generally in a 2014, they got two teams. You know, you look at Southland, usually they got two, maybe a third with Nichols occasionally getting in. You know, the Southern Conference occasionally has had three teams in. The Big South usually just has one still. Ohio Valley occasionally has got two in if Jacksonville State doesn't win the league. So there's some things that, like, normally play out in a 2014 deal. But in the 16 here, I, I, man, it's, it's going to come down, and, and scoreboard watching is going to be fun. There's a couple games playing. I think there's one or two Friday and the rest are Saturday, and I think the games that really matter, I think the la- that kicks at 2.30. I, I don't think there's any games at 5, 6, 7 o'clock Saturday that, that kind of factor into all this. I think we can look at this Saturday and have a realistic uh, expectation of, okay, is there a shot, is there not? The simple math for me, if you're an ETSU fan, if Mercer and VMI both win, 
I think you can go ahead and pack it in. Right. Uh, you know, there's no way there's three. There's no way you're leapfrogging. That's the case. In the same token, again, I'll say it. If Citadel and Sanford win, I think it's impossible to justify two SOCON teams at that point. So you're basically pulling if you're a Buck fan. I think the best way to get in is VMI win, Mercer lose. And we should say this. We speculate a lot on this show, but some of this is informed speculation that ETSU is still in the conversation. Can't go and do all the specifics, but I know it's been billed as you lose to Mercer, you're out. It is not that simple, and ETSU has not been written off by those that make the decisions. So, yes, take everything with a grain of salt on this show, because it's Sanderson the sidekick, but there are some opinions and facts behind this that go further than just Sandoz and Sidekick. Yeah, yes, there are things that we uh, can be privy to. I'll, I'll say this. Having a guy work at North Dakota State, he used to be here at ETSU that runs a talk show and gets a chance to talk and get input from clearly one of the schools that has a lot of power say and what goes on. Uh get a lot of good information from him, got a lot of good information from a couple people that are on the committee that I know personally. There's some things there. I know ETSU is in the top 20. I, you know, I can tell you that for sure. So that means there is a shot. So if you thought, listening to this podcast ahead of time, no shot, you're not going to worry about it, you're not going to look, there is a legitimate shot. Cowboy up, go play ball. It is a long shot, but to me, 20, when 16 teams get in, and yes, I know, some of, the, some of the leagues that get autos aren't going to be in the top 20. And, let's be honest, you don't know if COVID cases come up between now and then. You don't know if Monday morning, do they have a backup plan? Do they do the NCAA tournament and say, hey, you've got to Tuesday to figure out if you can play or not. If not, we're putting this team in, we're moving the game to Sunday, which they could easily do, and you're going to go there and play on a Sunday. And then if you win that, you turn around and play on a Saturday, get over it, you got in the playoffs. So there's a lot of things going on. This, we are – I would be shocked – if everybody we covered it isn't in, again, some of this research can be do on your own, but I feel like we have a pretty good grip on how this is going to play out. Portal Watch. Portal Watch. After this, Santa's sidekick on the Buccaneer Sports Network. This responsible gaming message is brought to you by the Tennessee Lottery. When you play the lottery, it's important to play responsibly. Know your limit and spend only what you can afford. Set a budget and stick to it. And remember... As long as you're having fun, you're always a winner in our book. The Tennessee Lottery is a proud supporter of National Problem Gambling Awareness Month. To learn more about problem gambling resources, visit tnlottery.com. Does it get any better? This has been fun. First of all, there we go. There we go. Is that a celebration bell? Again, I love ETSU Twitter. Sometimes it's undefeated. Brewer Brothers are back, but that wasn't my favorite tweet about the Brewer Brothers. I don't know where in the world Kyle Corbett came up with the uh, almost the Zoolander, um, gosh, what was that? Blue Steel look of Charlie Weber. That he put up there and said the third Brewer Brothers coming back, but I thoroughly, 
I don't know that I've laughed at my desk where people had to walk into my office to see what I was laughing at. But the cutout photo of that blue steel face on Charlie Weber proclaiming the third Brewer brother was back was phenomenal. Phenomenal. Ty Ladarius no longer in the portal. And that's great because there was some official news throughout the rest of ETSU's roster, and there will be, I believe, more official news as early as later tonight, definitely tomorrow. But what we do know right now, Jamari Monsanto to Wake Forest, not a complete surprise. The other two here, I did raise an eyebrow. Richard Amafole to Dayton and Day Day to Stephen F. Austin. That's Day Day Hall, not David Sloan. Yeah, and I thought, and that makes sense. He's a Texas guy, had some ties. Again, it was one of those, like, we, what do we know, a few weeks, a couple months, and I I get it. I mean, it was uh, it was there. But I, I thought the, I think Stephen Austin probably is a good fit for him, I mean, to be honest. And all the ETSU guys that win, I thought were good fits. I can see that. Oh, you don't, you don't agree with me. A bofflated date. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he's a, he's a top, what, I don't know, 50 center. <laughs> All right, all right. So here's how that happened, I think. Uh, we, Greg Heyer, who's now the Northwest Florida uh, JUCO head coach, his, what is it, his sister-in-law is the head coach at Dayton. Anthony Grant, clearly him and um, Coach Heyer have known each other a long time. Richard Sander clearly knows him well, and I'm going to say Richard Sander was instrumental in making him go because uh, he was trying to talk to everybody to stay. I've, I've heard his speech to people about staying. So I know he was trying to get them to stay, but I could see how that happened very easily because that was a Greg Hired get. That was a Greg Hired guy. When he told Coach Hire he wasn't coming back, Coach Hire tried to help him find a landing spot, and, you know, he landed at Dayton. So if you had to rank shockers, Damari to Wake Forest had to be low on the totem pole. Stephen F. Austin, uh, Day-Day makes sense. It's just interesting because and then the of the cameo they, here. Sure. That's the interesting part. You think, okay, well, you're – out of high school a little bit early, right, and you come in and you have the unique able to play right away and you're on a roster. And I guess it makes sense, though, for the time here where he wasn't on the court a lot, right, just coming in very late on, already in the season, missed, what was it, 111 practices or whatever Coach Shea said it was. But you think maybe that would factor into where he would go, but why would it, right? Because he's just coming out of, ETSU, even still before everyone else is coming out of high school. So why not just write off those couple of months as, hey, he got his feet wet in college. Maybe it could even help him in the fact that he was around a college program and certainly not hurting his stock because what were you expecting from a guy coming in mid-year that was able to play just a couple of times, not really practice with the team, and physically looks the part, right? Like looks like he can play college basketball right now. So why not just treat him as another high school recruit and bring him in as a highly touted prospect as he was? Yeah, and again, he was able to start early, get a little taste of college basketball, then didn't count, start over. I mean, it it makes sense, uh, especially you know each issue with all the and any freshman. I, I think for freshmen that were able to get a little bit of college basketball underneath them, rather it wasn't going to work out at that school. It was a coaching change; they couldn't cut it particularly just wasn't a good fit, whatever. I think this was an interesting time for those guys to come on the floor, experience a little bit of college life, see what happens, and then how they move forward. Because clearly, if you haven't seen the transfer portal, plenty of guys have done that. That's all the old stuff. 
or the new stuff, I should say. The old stuff, Marcus and I like to tell, has the community college. Truth Hair is still in the portal along with Paul Smith and Ishmael Valdez. Sorrell Smith also still officially in the portal. Um, unsure of those five. I know that Coach Oliver is trying to make sure that he has some clarity in the very near future on what the plans are for those still in the portal that are not currently signed with other teams. Furman, since we last came on the air, saw Noah Gurley signed with Alabama. Noah Gurley to Alabama, still the only Paladin in the portal, but Gurley to Alabama, a program that has certainly been on the rise, I think, over the last, how many years would you say? Two. Or is it two? I was going to say. NATO's been here two. I'm going to go two. Yeah, let's go two years. So, Trending in the right direction. Noah Gurley had a lot of offers. And he had a good game against Alabama. True. So, firsthand, I'm sure Coach Oates saw, okay. And that was one we thought he could land, right? I mean, I, I was on the board at the, you know, that was a place he probably could land because he saw you had talked me into, uh, and I was all on board on trying to get him at Duke so we could just have an all SOCON uh, ACC matchups there in the semifinals. But that makes sense to me. I think it's a good fit. They like to shoot outside. They play fast. He's long. I mean, you know, out of all some of these head scratchers we've seen, to me, this makes a ton of sense. Western Carolina, Xavier Court, had a lot of different options going to TCU. It's a step up. Um, we've seen TCU take a few other SOCON guys, if I'm not mistaken, so that seems to be a nice uh, ground for those guys to land. Corey Hightower goes with Mark Prosser to Winthrop. So we may have our questions about some players on the team and how much he had the locker room. Clearly, Corey Hightower is someone that wanted to follow Mark Prosser to win. Right, and, and he loves to live in a triangle where you go from Presbyterian to Cullowee to Winthrop. That's, that's got to be a, uh, it's a it's an acute angle, but still, that is a very interesting triangle of schools to choose from, and not shocking. Good players. Mason Faulkner, Cameron Gibson, Tyler Harris, Travion McRae, Sincere McMahon, all still out there. Of course, we already had Matt Halverson, Florida Gulf Coast. Sanford. Really solid program in Bowling Green, adding a really solid player in Myron Gordon. That's where he lands. K.J. Mm. Davis goes to Bethune-Cookman. The Bulldogs add Jermaine Marshall. We talked about that last week. Now Loyola Chicago's Cooper Capes, who missed last season recovering from offseason hip surgery, but shot 46% from three, 53 of 114 in his freshman season with the Ramblers. Preston Parks League champion Christian Gastiel and Dupree all still looking to land with the new team. And... You know, and he's got a couple freshmen. Did the, was Quez on the list too? Uh, no, but that did just break too. Yeah. Quez Glover, is that right? Uh, yeah, from Bearden, from Knox Bearden High School in Knoxville, that was rumored to maybe have a shot to come to ETSU. Lands at Sanford, so a Florida guard. So that's their third transfer. He's got a couple of freshman commits as well. I think he's got a JUCO, like six eleven center, six ten center coming in as well. I think I looked on something else. So he's got five or six. New guy, and I had to replace like 30. Uh, he has to match the coaching staff where he has like 32 guys on staff. You need to have a player for a coach or something like that. So we'll see a buggy ball year two. Starting to land some folks. What's he going to do with them? Uh, uh, also, Sanford just got apparently the number 60 player in the country. Yeah, I, I, shenanigans on that. I, I could, not, <laughs> could not find him. And Wesley Cardet Jr., you're not a big yeah, Wesley no, Cardet Jr. You know what, I, I don't even know that I can find him. I was trying to look up the ESPN, and grand ESPN basketball recruiting is not as good as their ESPN football recruiting. He was number 60 on Rivals, number 59 on 247 Sports, but the cumulative rating on 247 Sports, I believe, was 98. 
and you were not able to find them on ESPN's what top 300? Yeah, I Woo! did not find them on the top 300. So, so there's some um, disagreements from some on the value of the man that just signed, Wesley Cardet Jr. Uh, Mercer, quick decision for Leon Ayers, who was one of my favorite players in the SoCon last year, chooses Duquesne as recently as two years ago. Duquesne 21 game winners, Andrew Thomas and Mitch Prendergast. Still cemented to the portal. Wofford, nothing new. You got Storm Murphy, Virginia Tech, Trey Hollow, Moorhead State, Zion Richardson still out there. Michael Hewitt Jr. is still available for UNCG. John Newman the third, they made official incoming from Clemson earlier this week. But just in the last, what, two, three hours, you've seen a couple of their top options now that Isaiah Miller has entered the draft, enter the portal. Angelo Allegri and Caleb Hunter are in, while Wesley Miller, who we can talk about more in bold predictions, is out going to Cincinnati. Yeah, I think that makes sense. When First of all, Wesley Miller, we talked about it. You foreshadowed a uh, brilliant call. Um, Bold prediction. And it make, makes sense that he couldn't go um, or that he needed to go upright, maybe win a different level. Maybe Carolina wasn't quite sold on that yet. Of course, Hubert Davis been there for a while. He signed all these Carolina guys. They clearly only want Carolina people to ever coach there. So he still got a shot because there's still not that many Carolina guys that are head coaches. So we go to Cincinnati, wins a little bit. Davis struggles. I think it's a brilliant move. And then not a shocker that some of his players want to leave. And it wouldn't shock me if one or two guys. And I can't imagine Allegra doing well at Cincinnati. Um, Caleb Hunter, I think, would have a little better shot. But neither one of them, I think, fit the mold of probably what you need to do at Cincinnati. We have talked about, and specifically on Last Portal Watch, that when you've got a coaching change, and you can just look across all of college basketball, it is not a hard and fast rule, but even in this offseason you've seen most of the teams that have a ton of guys in the portal, those programs are going through a coaching change. The Citadel, Caden Rice still looking for a home BMI. All stands pat with the Kedats. Greg Parham already at South Alabama. Miles Lewis at Denise State. Trey can fall. Fielding calls. Chattanooga, Prosper, Obadidubi, and Trey Dooms still in the portal. It also should be noted that Western Carolina had a man that wanted to play for Mark Prosser, pull his commitment from Western Carolina, and follow Prosser to Winthrop. Remember, we talked about him in the first portal. Yeah. Watch Cameron Whiteside from UVA West. Yeah, and again, I think that's pretty – People love Prosser. I mean, it's the same thing that uh, Couture did at Virginia Tech. He was going to go to Wofford. Then all of a sudden, Mike Young gets the Virginia Tech job. He follows the merits office. He worked out him for there. So, uh, you know, again, some of this where you sign with the school, let's be honest, that hadn't happened in, like, 50 years. There's an occasional guy that, yes, I want to sign with that school because I'm a legacy or it's a school I grew up loving from a kid, but 97% of people usually go to school they didn't think they would go to or heard of, and so uh, it doesn't shock me that that is um, what he did. He went with a coach that he knows. Players you won't see in a SoCon. I know everyone in the area gets excited, but Texas Tech's Mac McClung is not coming home. It's not going to happen. There's no school within. I'm not even sure there's a school within, gosh, how many hours do you think of here that you would go to? Would he go to Tennessee? Uh, they were, you know, would he go to Wake Forest? Would he go to Wake Forest? I, I don't think he'd go to either if you're already at Texas Tech and you're, having, you're already in the draft as well. What he announced was he's going into the NBA draft and the transfer portal. Right, he's not hiring an agent. If things work out in the draft, then he goes there. If it doesn't, he's a mercenary. And I just saw a tweet that said that he had heard from, like, every big program in the country, including, like, the Kentuckys and, I think, Gonzaga. So I, don't get your hopes up for that. ETSU and Southern Conference fans. Gonzaga's Umar Balo, only 6.2 minutes a game for the Bulldogs last year. 
but Jonathan Gavoni of ESPN labeled him the top international prospect in 2019, guessing that you wouldn't envision him at 7 feet 260 coming to Johnson City as a top I know you love prospect. your 7. Uh, I love my seven No, he's not. He's not. Players you might see in the SoCon. Florida Southern transfer Brandon Carroll. He was originally at Bryant, averaged 5 points per game and 3.5 rebounds, was all league after transferring down, has one season of eligibility remaining as a grad transfer. He won the Bryant Midnight Madness Dunk Contest. We love our leapers here at ETSU. Ben Parrish made me aware of this tweet on the Twitter. Hoop Scoop Media saying that ETSU has reached out along with a number of other mid-majors, but then a big name is on that list, West Virginia. I'm not tampering. All I'm saying is he might end up in the SoCon, not specifically at ETSU. Just wanted to throw that out there so we don't get in trouble. Yeah, I didn't think about that, but I'm, I'm glad you did throw yeah. that out there, that we have a lot of pool, that we've been getting a lot of recruits come in. That's a, I mean, I'm on a hot streak when it comes to predicting things, yeah. so I just yeah, don't yeah, want to yeah, – there fair. shouldn't be any confusion there. VCU transfer Brendan Medley-Bacon at 7-1, 240 pounds, was dominant at Coppin State, leading the MEAC in blocks in his two seasons there, also had 12.5 boards per game. In 2018-19, leading the MEAC, put up nine points per game across both of his years. Transfers to VCU, only plays 39 minutes. Maybe too much for the MEAC, not enough for the A-10. I think he settles in the Southern Conference, uh, maybe right in between those two levels. Like 10 minutes ago, I saw that he committed to McNeese State. So, I'll pivot. Vladislav Golden is my guy. Texas Tech, speaking of which, only played in 10 games as a reserve, not much of an impact guy. U18 and U19 team in Russia. I figure if Medley Bacon is going all the way down to McNeese State, Golden maybe goes a bit further down the ladder than some may think to. Vladislav Golden. He looked good in blue and gold. I think, I think you should book it. Book it! Uh, usually we do a look at what programs have the most players in the portal in this space, but there's only 100 new players in the portal this week, which I know sounds like a big number, but considering yeah, the hundreds 13, and hundreds 1400, whatever it is now. that have come in previous weeks, a relatively low amount considering the recent flood of players. So programs haven't changed much in terms of most in the portal. UT Martin, Portland, Albany, Jacksonville, Green Bay, just to name a few. How about teams that aren't having those issues? National champion Baylor, why leave, right? Only one has opted to, and it's a man they didn't have this past year, Tristan Clark, who was preseason All-Big 12 a couple of seasons ago, actually announced his retirement on Twitter just before the season. Now he's in the portal at 6'10", 235. Belmont, start 24-1, and go 18-2 and in your league, got a good thing going. They intend to keep it that way. Only Mitch Listow is in the portal. And Cal, horrific since Quanzo Martin left. Horrific. Just 39 wins in four seasons, but only one in the portal. Some guys that are committed to turning it around, at least. And that is your portal. Now we're going to do a little bold recap. And we don't have to. Closing bell is into the show. The Tampa Bay Buccaneers have reportedly agreed to terms with free agent wide receiver Antonio Brown. Yes, Where was it? The Warriors' Clay Thompson Not is out for the season but again. This time it's a torn Achilles. Wesley Carter Jr. Had him as the 26th best small forward. Now one and six. And state to save a lifeless organization. He was a four-star. The conference canceled fall sports on Thursday with the hope that those athletic teams can resume in the spring. The SoCon season is done. 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 Jay told me the turkey wasn't enough for Thanksgiving. He went and got two stubs and a brownie to watch it 
Just disgusting. Just disgusting. Apparently nobody's seen Angry Man. Not a great week for you. And it was a great week for me. Someone check to see if I still had a brain. Hideki Matsuyama, maybe the greatest bold prediction in bold predictions history. I saw him at plus 4,600 after we got off the air. Now, do I feel smart for making the bold prediction and getting a point, drawing me one closer to you, or do I feel stupid for not making a count? I'm kidding. I would never do that. The NCAA sanctions golf, so I obviously am unable to do so as an employee. But can you imagine? Yeah, yeah. Plus 4,600. Could have put 100K on it and then retired. You're a genius. Citadel over Furman. Do you have 100K? Uh, yes. Okay. Sure. Yeah. Offshore bank accounts, don't ask. Citadel over Furman. I am the smartest man alive! Uh, I said ETSU blocks a kick or a punt. That did not happen. Unfortunately, special nope. teams went the opposite way. Jay Sandoz, Bucks win by two scores. That did yep. not happen. Jordan Spieth outside the top 20. That did not happen. He tied for third. And whoever the coat rack, coat rack is, uh, Coat Rack. Uh, top 20, he finished 49. So you go over. Now here's a conundrum more. 22 and a half this, for you. This is not, not a conundrum. 21 and a half for me. You have a one prediction advantage, but I said on last week's show, Wesley Miller. I love Wes Miller. Was going to Cincinnati. And he goes to Cincinnati, and just because I don't say it in bold predictions, but it is still on the air, I think I should get at least one point, maybe even two, to get the win. So what you're I saying is, Wes Miller, is that you want to end bold predictions in a tie because you're like kissing your sister. Is that what you're telling me? Wow. I think that we should do what we do every year mm-hmm. and make bold predictions for the summer. Maybe just one apiece to try and settle this. Because we didn't get to do a show, let's see, was that two weeks ago, that Thursday? And then we got robbed of a show this week as well because Mercer somehow stumbled into a win. Okay, we're blame chat because we didn't have a game this week. And we blame Chattanooga for that. So there's three things that have made sure that my massive comeback, I clearly have tons of momentum. I predict a plus 4,600 to Matt Sayama. I say Wesley Miller is going to Cincinnati. If I said Santa Claus walked in the door right now, you'd say there's no way, and you would walk right through, hit you in the head with a bag of presents. The reindeer at the front of it, what is it, Rudolph, he would kick you right in the face, and your head would go flying, and I'd win everything. It's a bit aggressive on all that, but go ahead. I did not remember to make bold predictions. Yeah. So I don't have any bold predictions to make. No, well, here's the deal. If Bucks make playoffs, we obviously have to have a show sure. talking about that. Then we'd have to have a preview show, okay. and we would have more bold predictions. And I should say that we have done Portal Watch for the amount of time that we have. Should we just have a floating Portal Watch out there in case some really big news hits, maybe an emergency we will, Portal we'll, Watch? I'll say this. If there's no playoffs, we should have a show to bash the playoffs. Yes. Okay. Love that. And then we'll do Portal Watch. Okay. And then we'll do end of season predictions. Okay. And then obviously when ETSU gets in the playoffs, we'll preview that. And in the next show on that Thursday, we will obviously preview the game. Okay. And then we'll do bowl predictions. And then we'll still have another edition of. So it's twenty two and a half to twenty one and a half. No bowl predictions this week, but there probably will be some more shows. This is our last like guaranteed weekly show because radio season's pretty much over. But bowl predictions, the hope remains. You have tied me, beaten me on the last show of the year, and now I end up one short on the last Now you're show. chasing. It now you're chasing. That's the way I like it. Me being the leader. I cannot believe it. All right, so sometime next week we'll do a show, whether it's Tuesday talking about ETSU in the playoffs or talking about ETSU not in the playoffs and who's in the playoffs, shockers, matchups. Maybe we'll just give our FCS predictions. An hour of bold predictions. I love it. All right. Santa's sidekick next week. We'll have something for you. Back in here, Smart Network.